Are we recording? No, too much, too much, too much, too much. Hey, everybody! Welcome to Ducks Watch Together. I'm Josh. Kylie. And on today's episode, we talk about the films of 1939. In 3D. No, it's in 4D. Okay, now when I make that sound again, you just punch yourself in the face, and that's the 4D. There's only probably one of these films that would do that to you. In 4D? Yeah. Okay. Stagecoach. Oh, okay. No, you just catch on fire in that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe in Mr. Smith's Washington, Goes to Washington, like, you're the people getting punched out by him. Oh, in Ninochka, somebody just laughs in your ear. <laughs> Garbo laughs. Garbo laughs, indeed. Garbo talks. Kylie, we are here today to talk about the films of 1939. Mm -hmm. uh, why are we here? This is a part two of an episode that I was very excited to do, and I'm very grateful that we got to do. Um, we did, a little bit ago, we did the films of 1999, as it's considered to be one of the greatest years in uh, movie history. And... One of the uh, classic answers to what's the greatest year in movie history is 1939. Um, and 1939 is a year on the golden age of, of movie making and cinema in Hollywood. And it, it is considered to be one of the best years because of the impact that the movies have had, as well as the cultural success and just a lot of... A lot of uh, elements of cinema and elements of movie making in Hollywood come from this year. There's a lot of big stars, a lot of big stories. Uh, there are still films that hold up in today's culture, even 80, 80 years later. Um, and so I thought it would be really interesting because I know there was a lot of folks that were doing 99 episodes and I wanted to talk about 99, but I also wanted to talk about 39 and see what we think and how these films stack up and what what they what they are how they are so we watched 11 of them i think i got to 13 but we watched 11 of them together um nope. well sorry we didn't we watch them together zero of yes, them together yeah, yeah, sorry we both have seen 11 films at least from 1939 um and we're going to talk about them including um Nine of ten Best Picture nominees. There's only one that we have that's not a Best Picture nominee that's in here. Um, and some of that was just because of availability, because some of them are harder to find than others. And uh, others. And this was also an excuse for me to expand my movie collection and get more classic movies, because I purchased quite a few of these as well. So. Uh, Kylie, what are you... Opening thoughts so far. <laughs> I didn't love them. Okay. <laughs> Any of them. Um, I liked some of them. Some of them I was pretty engaged with. Um, it's pretty I was pretty unsurprised the ones that I did find interesting because of either the source material that they're based on or just having heard of them before. Right. Yeah, so that that was something that <clears throat> it, I was unsurprised when I was like, oh, I like this film. Which ones had you never heard of before? Had never heard of. Yeah. Um, Dark Victory, Ninochka, mm -hmm. 
and only angels have wings, which I shouldn't watch. It's okay. <laughs> there you go. Uh, okay, great. Perfect. Um, and what had you seen before this exercise? The Wizard of Oz and Wuthering Heights. Oh, and of Mice and Men. Okay. You'd seen both those adaptations before. Mm-hmm. Nice. School? Did you watch them in school or did you just watch them? In school. Okay. Yeah, not to write an essay. Um, oh, I did that. <laughs> Hi, that's me. Yes. Hi. <laughs> Uh, I think in school they showed us the Gary Sinise version of Of Mice and Men. I've seen that one too. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but. Malkovich? Malkovich. Yep. Sinise and Malkovich. Okay. Listen, Sinise is short and Malkovich is tall. Is he? Sure. (laughs) I mean, in comparison to Gary Sinise. Is Gary Sinise Lieutenant Dan? Yes. Okay. So that's why I should care about who he is. Well. You know, he's also uh, in Apollo 13. He's also George Milton. <laughs> um, who? Isn't that the guy's name in that? Oh, yes. Yeah. He's nah. Is he the guy who gets sick and doesn't go to the moon? Yes. Yeah, he's the guy that gets sick and doesn't go to the moon in Apollo 13. Oh, yeah. He's in Apollo 13. He's You're in right. Houston. He's literally, like, there talking to them. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> He's also uh, the voice of Mission Space, or he was the voice of Mission Space. I don't know if he's still the voice of Mission Space. I don't know what that means. Uh, Mission Space is a ride in Epcot in Disney World. Don't worry, a podcast the ride will get to it at some point. How's the downtown Disney? I haven't started. Because, <laughs> you know, once you start, it's going to consume your life. Yes, that is 100% true. Okay, uh, so... Uh, what we did for 99, and I thought would work well here as well, is we did a, a, a cooperative draft where our goal was to to rank these movies from least relevant to today to most relevant to today. I mean, number one is clear. Yes, it is. Not really. I'm glad we are right here. We all agree. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Okay, we'll get there. <laughs> we will. Oh, okay, anyways. Um, but uh, before we jump into making our collaborative list, uh, I don't think I've answered this question before, or asked this question before, but I thought this would be a fun time to talk about who are some of our favorite golden age or classic actors. So, who from this, uh, the, the golden age or the classic era? So, we'll say anything pre, let's go pre-1970, just to give ourselves an arbitrary cutoff line. And, uh, yeah. What, what's up? I was just going to see if you had a response. I mean, I have one pretty yeah. easy, because yeah. I've seen several of his films. But yeah, it's just, it's from pure happenstance of like, I've seen lots of those films. Aww, which, which actor is it there? Who is it? Jim, Jimmy Stewart. That was, do you have a good Jimmy Stewart impersonation? No. I don't either. Yeah, that's why I don't try. But I just want to try it all the time. Um, Mary. Jack Lemmon? Jack Lemmon would count. He's on, like, the, the older end of that. I've seen quite a few Jack Lemmons also, and I yeah. don't know why. I'm like, ah, Jack Lemmon! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> See, now I'm just naming actors who I can uh, name. Who are the who? Who can I name? Uh, uh, Betty Betty Davis. Uh, Garbo, she laughs uh, once. <laughs> um, that guy's also important. The what? No, I don't know who that is. That guy is like. Olivier, yeah, he's a he's a really like popular actor. I've seen his Shakespeare stuff. Uh huh. That's and then Wuthering Heights. Those are the only like I've seen him either be in a Shakespeare movie or in Wuthering Heights. He, he has some awards named. Yeah, after the him. Olivier's. <laughs> I also said he was a great actor when we did the British people. Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Also, you know what else he is? Old. Uh, Jerk. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. He's like, like, here's my. I think my comparison point for Lawrence Olivier is Christian Bale. Like his mom. Well, okay, maybe not that bad, but maybe that bad. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, like, just kind of has anger, a lot of it. But we're all like, okay, well, he's a good actor though. The only like women I really know from this time are Judy Garland. I know about. I know about Greta Garbo. Is that her name? Uh-huh. Uh, I know Betty Davis' eyes, uh-huh. and I know about Joan Crawford, but I have not seen a good enough amount of their films to say my opinions on any of them. I guess fair. I am. Um, my two faves from this era, I think, are pretty basic. Uh, it's... Oh, uh, well, <laughs> you're going to give the basic answer? No, no, I'm just saying that I think I have a basic taste. Like... Did you see my answers? <laughs> you just started naming folks. Um, yeah, I named Jimmy Stewart. Jack Lemmon's actually like <laughs> the the one that's yeah. a little bit strange. Well, I mean, Lemmon's also like one of my, but yeah, um, it's Judy Garland and Jimmy Stewart. Like those two, I think are the maybe they might just be the most culturally significant, and maybe they're just the ones that I personally have sought out. But like, I like that what they represent. I like their personas. I like uh, I think they're both super talented. They're always engaging on screen. I think their performance style holds up really well to a modern era. And so, yes, that both of them get um, satirized quite a bit. Uh, especially in the 90s when especially we're... Especially by you right now. Yeah, what, what are you talking about, Mary? I've never done a Jimmy Stewart impersonation ever. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't... It's so bad. Where's, where's the money? Where's the money? <laughs> where's the money? Where's the... George! George! Where's the... Oh, wait, he's George. Um, Uncle! Uncle! Uh, Uncle Billy! Uncle, Uncle Billy! Billy! Where's, where's the, the money? money? <laughs> I'm gonna throw myself off this bridge. I'm gonna do it, Clarence. Go for it. Okay. Oh... <laughs> <laughs> My Clarence didn't want his wings. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they, they're, they're two of my faves. I enjoy watching them. Uh, but friends, if you have a classic golden era age actor that you enjoy, maybe someone we didn't rec- mention, you should tell us at friendandfriendpodcast.scorespace.com. John Wayne. He is an actor. He's an actor <laughs> that a lot of people like. I actually think he's a... John Wayne's an interesting figure only because, like, I actually really like watching John Wayne on screen sometimes. I think he can be a very interesting and intriguing actor, mm-hmm. but man, he's a garbage human. Yeah. Doesn't he play, like... Mm, I'm gonna get his name. Go... Come back to me in a few. Alright, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts. Attila the Hun? No. Yeah, at some point, probably. Something like that? Yeah? Mm. That seems rightish. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> you can find us on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. We leave us a five star review or any star review as well. Mm. Hit that subscribe Sorry, button. Sorry, he plays Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. That's what it is. 
Because Genghis Khan is one of the most important figures in history for the sole purpose, well, I, for many reasons, but like one of the biggest things is the bubonic plague is because of, it spreads with great part because of Genghis Khan. I find that so interesting. Anyways, continue. Uh, you can hit that subscribe button, it helps us get more listeners. I'm Mr. Lincoln. <laughs> You can. Uh, and I'm going to be your lawyer. <laughs> you can also find us on Facebook at Friend of a Friend Podcast. And now on with the show. All right, Kylie, here we are. We've done it. Hey. We've we've made it to 1939. Mm-hmm. We got in our way back machine, and we made it here. It's full of dead women. <laughs> it is full of dead women. <laughs> You're not wrong. Thank you. Uh, it's full of uh, men trying to be men and literary adaptations and mm, racism and sexism and America. It's full of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. But it's also full of some good movies. Yeah, this is. This is right before World War Two is going to start. Yes, we've done World War One. Uh huh. We're not excited for the sequel. <laughs> that was a good joke. Sorry. <laughs> um, it's kind of an interesting time in America. Yeah. And here we are, about to make a bunch of films. And we're going to talk about them. Josh, what do you think is the least significant, or least culturally significant film? Uh, before we do that, I had a thing that I had pulled up, and then I need to find here really fast. Um, because I wanted to, I wanted to set set the scene a little bit for 1939. Are you All playing right. music? I'm not playing music. Okay. Well, we we don't have the money for that. All right, here are some 1939 facts. All right. Uh, Is this going to be like when you did Spielberg and you we let you just talk for 40 minutes? No, please no. Okay, <laughs> um, okay so the average cost of a house, a new, a brand new house mm-hmm. in 1939 was $3,800. The uh, average uh, cost for a gallon of gas... Ten cents. Ten cents. Uh, rent, 28 bucks a month. Um, a loaf of bread was eight cents. Let's see. What else would I got? What, what are some other things that are that are going here? Uh, the star, uh, Poland is invaded by Germany on September 1st, 1939. Um, the Manhattan Project is beginning to be researched. Uh, Lou Gehrig retires from baseball from the Yankees because of ALS. Oh man, this this film literally has the premiere of Stagecoach as like a like actual important historical event apparently. And Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz, so cinema is a big deal in America. Great. All right. This gives us a little bit of a, a context. Uh, there's a Chilean earthquake 
that uh, kills 30,000 folks. The last public execution by the guillotine happens in 1939, everybody. So the price of a house in 1931 was $68,000 in today's money. Wow. Mm -hmm. Ten cents, you said? Uh Uh-huh. Mm, gas is gas is still significantly cheap. It's about a dollar seventy nine per gallon. Okay. What else do I got? Uh, the price of a new car seven hundred dollars. Um, so it's about twelve thousand five hundred sixty one. All right. Uh, can of tomatoes soup. Campbell's tomato soup. You get four for a quarter. So you get six twenty five for one. Or point zero point. That was about a dollar eight. Yeah. There you go. All right. So I mean, like, some of these things are more like the housing market. Okay, um, here's a good one. The average wage of a person mm-hmm. is one thousand seven hundred and thirty dollars. That's about thirty one thousand yeah. a year. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Set the scene a little Context bit. Context is important because yeah. everyone's like, that's mad dude. You could buy that for a nickel. And I'm like, uh-huh. Sure you could. Inflation. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. The um, value of a dollar is going down. By a lot. Or something. Yeah. I think that's good context to just have to be like, what are we talking about here? I do think 39 is a really interesting year to talk about and to look at on the whole, because I think a lot of the issues that they deal with in 1939 in their own ways, we're still dealing with and struggling with in our own ways. And I also think that these films are representative of a lot of the beliefs and structures and values that a lot of people are railing against and trying to tear down now. And I also think it's a good representation of what America was like at the beginning of, um, at the beginning of the 1900s. Um, when Anne and I were watching Goodbye Mr. Chips, we were realizing that it was going all the way back to the late 1800s and it was chronicling through World War One. Um, and I was trying to put in context of my brain of when it was, and basically it is looking back upon that era as if we are looking back on the 80s. Like, that's the time frame that it's looking back on. And it's looking back on it really nostalgically. And I think in terms of comparison point, that's something to know well. Because we right now are looking back very nostalgically on the 80s and the early 90s. Much in the way that I think a lot of these films look back nostalgically on the past. Um, and to think of how far these are in our past, and they're already nostalgic for the past. So I think it's really interesting that that's just a cultural thing. All right. Kylie. Mm-hmm. Um, 11 films. Do you want uh, do you want the first pick or do you want me to make the first pick of what is the least culturally important film to 2019? I don't I don't know. Do you want me to pick? Well, then, then you want to pick it? <laughs> yeah. I've got it narrowed down to 
two, and no, I don't think it's young Mr. Lincoln. Do you want me to pick? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to say... The, okay, so the... my pick is Goodbye, Mr. Chips. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Which has been remade like 80 times. <laughs> Very... Not at all relevant. <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Chips does a thing where it's like, we're going to chronicle a whole person's life. And we do it over and over again. I think that the relevance of Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which is a film that follows a teacher at a private boarding school um, from the moment he steps on the grounds to the moment that he dies. dies. Uh, we're going to spoil all these films, by the way. So sorry. Go go watch some 39 films, everybody. You don't need to. Um, Just read my reviews. I mean, or, or you can go enjoy them yourselves. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, goodbye, Mr. Chips. Uh, I think its cultural relevance is only in the sense of this style of movie is made over and over and over again. Like, you could almost say that Dead Poet Society is a direct adaptation of Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Um, it's not. There's different elements to the plot, but, I mean, it's it's very similar. Uh, something like Mr. Holland's Opus is also a pretty similar thing here. But the other thing that it does, too, is um, it also does that life's journey. It's like a biopic in a lot of ways. Um, it's hecka boring. <laughs> You, you weren't really into the performance of, of Robert Donut? He's the same guy the whole way through, right? Yeah. That's shocking. It's a mustache. Yeah. Um, he's good. I don't know if he's a good teacher, because they never want to show us yeah, that. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, we don't get to know that. We're just told he's a good teacher. Um, the only few times we do see him teaching, he's... Uh, sucks. He's caning someone? Uh-huh. Yeah. Or it's his first day and he sucks. Yeah. Um, yeah. He really wants his students to like him, though. There's a whole scene where, like, he gets sad at, like, Christmas time. Where, like, all the students are, like, gathering around all the teachers that they do like. And he's, like, over in the corner. And then, like, one of his old students comes up and he's like, Mr. Chips! And then he's like, hey! And he's like, do you know the way to the, the headmaster's office? And he's like, oh, I'm not liked. And then he goes and he uh, finds a wife. And then he's liked. Yeah. That's all it took. Yep, that's all it needed. He needed to like himself. Yeah. Um. It's it's a fine film. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed watching it. I don't. I, I don't. I can't. I don't know. Is what I will say. I really hate a thing that it does over and Ooh. over and over and over and over again. Which where is you meet a person. Uh huh. And then minutes later you meet them again but they're older now. oh and it's very apparent that it's the same person as they will directly address them and be like oh hello there young jimmy remember two minutes ago <laughs> when you had that hat on <laughs> um the other thing that is i think interesting about this movie is out of all of the performances and out of all of these uh things this guy wins best actor like, it's a year that features, like, an iconic Clark Gable performance, an iconic Henry Fonda performance, an iconic Jimmy Stewart performance, uh, probably the most known Laurence Olivier performance. You got all these guys in Wizard of Oz. Well, they're supporting actors. Um, this, this performance by Cary Grant and Only Angels Have Wings is really well loved. It really establishes his persona. 
And yet this guy, this guy who does very little things before and after this is the winner. I don't, I don't know why, it, it's just, I wonder if it's because it's a really different performance, because all of these other performances are melodramatic and big and they're broad, and this is a really small, kind of subtle performance. I wouldn't ever say that he's big in any way, shape, or form. I mean, he might be big for our modern standards, but his performance overall is pretty pretty small. So It's the best picture of any year. <laughs> yeah, bold tagline. <laughs> bold tagline. Let's see if it works out for them. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, it, this film is, it's fine. It wasn't terrible to watch. But, uh, Alright, um, my pick for next up. Oh, sorry, any other thoughts on Goodbye, Mr. Chips? No, Josh, okay. it's not significant. <laughs> it's not significant anymore. Uh, it was one of the ten Best Picture nominees. There's only one in here that we talk about that is Why? not one of the ten. Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> I... <laughs> I, it's a pretty... Yeah, okay. All right. Um, <laughs> oh, so there's two in here. Uh, I'm going to pick The Women next. Okay. I think that that's a great pick. Okay. So The Women is a uh, comedy about um, women. women who deal Only with... Only talk about their husbands. And societal issues involving their marriages. Mm-hmm. I think it's... I, I like watching this movie. I think it's really well made. Um, I think it's fun in a lot of ways, but it doesn't contextualize these ladies in any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very significant, Josh. How often do we nowadays have the the all-women version of something? That's what, <laughs> all from this. Stems straight from here. I mean, so when you do this play, um, as a, a, like in one of the writer requirements is there is that no men can actually work on the play. Um, so, like... There are men that worked on this movie, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. We didn't for... let women be groups or anything, Josh. <sighs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe we did. Who knows? George Kakur. <laughs> yeah. He was fired off this movie. Gone with the wind. Um, I, I don't. I enjoy watching this movie and these characters, but I don't have a lot to say about it in general. I know this is one of Anne's favorite movies of all time. Um, I know that Norma Shearer is the first ever woman to win two, uh, best acting, uh, best actress, um, nominees, or she's the first. Awards. Awards, thank you. Um, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell, they're, they're actors, they're big deals. My, uh, my knowledge of Joan Crawford is Mommy Dearest, so Uh I don't actually know much about Joan Crawford. Uh, Joan Crawford is actually a really interesting figure in terms of Hollywood history, because she tries to do a lot in, for women's rights in Hollywood, and she really does try to start pushing forward and trying to find roles that allow for women to not be contextualized only by the men that are on screen with them, and she pushes for more interesting characters, and, like, she is a really significant figure and I will say that The Women is a movie that is significant in that push because the fact that like there is no men on screen there is there's nothing that the story is about their relationships with men Mm -hmm. um, but it is not in in, you don't see them you know so we're that's a big deal at this time yeah uh, it, I, I I imagine it is a big deal. I don't want to belittle it. However, it does still feel like there the men are there just based on yeah. how much of the conversation they are, um, and so I think that step forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We must continue. 
I don't know of what significance this movie Ghostbusters twenty sixteen. Yeah? Do you think that's a direct, like... <laughs> the response to the women? To, to, to 1939's The Women? Yeah! Okay. I, we gotta get the love of the women, we'll do it this time. Uh, there is a 2000, I want to say 6 or 7 remake. 2008. W- 8? Mm-hmm. With uh, Meg Ryan, Eva Mendez, um, others. Yep. Yep, and others. Mm-hmm. Um... This film opens up. This film opens up by comparing women's to the animals that they would be like, and that is a weird choice. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I will say it's been. I did not. It's been. I did not specifically rewatch the women for this uh, podcast. It's been a little under a year since I've seen it, so uh, maybe some of the specific details are not quite there for me. But yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. Is it? You get to pick. I'm what's, not telling Josh, you. What's the next one? There's not a right answer. There is, though. Why? Because there's wrong answers. <laughs> is it that one? Is it the young Mr. Lincoln? I, you really want it to be young Mr. Lincoln. <laughs> what? Okay, great. Here, we're going to put is it Is it young it's, Mr. Lincoln? It's going to be What young. would you pick? No, that's what happened last time. <laughs> Kylie, you pick a movie. Um, Let's. Go with Young Mr. Lincoln. Young Mr. Lincoln. Okay. Cool. Yep. I think at this point we've kind of (laughs) entered into a tier where. (laughs) Sure, it's equal. (laughs) It's probably not one of three or four, but it could be most of the rest. Yeah, there's no memes on these. How am I supposed to know? (laughs) Uh, Some of them still have memes. Thank you very much. Okay. Josh, we we know where that one's going, though. Is it? Josh, it's somewhere in the top three. Okay. We know it's there. Yeah, fair. If it's not, I'm pretty sure you'll walk off a balcony. Okay, well, okay, so young Mr. Lincoln, Kylie, why is it it your next pickup? I don't know who this guy is. Henry Fonda? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's a name I recognize. Oh, oh, we got there, we got there. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know who he is, though. Uh, Do you know Jane Fonda? (laughs) Of Frankie and Grace? Yeah. Yeah. Uh Dad. Oh, hey. Hey, father. Yeah. I'm Mr. Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. Um, this shows that Mr. that Abraham Lincoln was a terrible lawyer and he just got <laughs> really freaking lucky. Uh-huh. Uh, immensely lucky. Luckier than anything. Uh, one of two movies to feature the Jews harp. Um, very, very interesting for 1939. Um, also, uh-huh. they just use it to, like, make it like, we're in the country. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. It, it's kind of stupid. <laughs> the, the myth of Abraham Lincoln is a lot. The myth of Abraham Lincoln affects this a little bit too much. I think the myth of Abraham Lincoln is... Created by this? It... Furthered, furthered, by this. yeah, and maybe enhanced in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, there's a stupid scene where he's holding a stick, and if it goes one way or the other, he'll become our president. Yeah, way does it go? Yeah, thanks, Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I liked the courtroom scene. Yeah, because I just like courtroom scenes. Is this? I think on Letterbox, this is your highest rated film <laughs> of 1939. <laughs> Yeah, the ones that I did record. Uh, uh, there's one that would probably be higher. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, there's a. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. I, they have the same rating, if not this one's higher. <laughs> okay. Um, I get it. <laughs> Josh, I get it. 
I just don't have them. But Lincoln. I see the emotion. <laughs> I just don't feel it. But Lincoln. Uh huh. Okay. I I understand Lincoln. <laughs> I I I. Yeah, as far as, like, this is actually something somewhat interesting that this is, like, the the Lincoln story that we choose because nowadays if you choose to do a movie, well, they're kind of changing it a little bit now, but in, like, previous years, you do the entire story of a person. Yeah. While this one focuses on just one part, which is kind of actually, like, the ebb and flow of what we're going back to. We're yes, We're going I back agree. to just showing one particular part i think it's more successful i think you get to really examine an interesting time period of an interesting human's life because an interesting actual real life figure is probably not is probably more interesting than one two-hour movie can really hold Mm -hmm. um young mr lincoln is our first of two john ford films that we'll talk about john ford being uh at one point considered maybe still considered by some to be the greatest american director um i understand why he adds a lot of technique to what we know uh, cinema to be. And I think this uh, Young Mr. Lincoln establishes a lot of drama elements that we know. Um, I don't love this movie on the whole. I think it's good. I enjoy watching it. You are right. The courtroom scene is the most entertaining and intriguing thing there. I do also like the sequence at um, the... I want to say carnival, but that's not right. The pie eating contest. The fair. The fair. Yes, at the fair. Um, that is also interesting. But there are some long stretches in here where we're just like, okay, come on, come on, Lincoln, get let's let's move forward a little let's bit in your lo- life. Yeah, become the Lincoln lawyer. Let's go, Lincoln lawyer. It is. Um, I like Henry Fonda's performance. I do think that a lot of what we represent Lincoln to be comes from this time as well. There is another Lincoln movie that, I'm blanking on the name of it, um, that is also out there that is not Daniel D. Lewis's Lincoln, um, that is from, I want to say that either the 50s or the 60s, maybe even a little bit earlier, that also helps to solidify it. But this, in terms of the visual style and what we think Lincoln sounds like, and all of those things, because like we don't actually have a recording of Abraham Lincoln. So a lot of the things of what we think Lincoln sounds like are going on hearsay and acting performances. Gosh, I'm not sure what your what Lincoln film you want. We got Abraham Lincoln in 1930. <clears throat> Abe Lincoln in Illinois, 1940. That might be it. Who plays Abe Lincoln in that one? Um. Boop, 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 boop. Raymond Macy. I think that's right. And directed by John... Oh, I don't know if it's directed by this guy. I was going to say directed by John Cromwell. Yep, I was right. John Cromwell. There is a... So there's a little video that is in front of Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, which is a attraction in Disney, which talks about young Mr. Lincoln, and I think that that film that you said that was from 1940. Abe Lincoln in Illinois. And I think those are the two that inspire that version of Lincoln as well. And between those three things, I think that really helps to uh, solidify what the legend of Abraham Lincoln is. And so I think that is why this film holds some historical significance. Um, yeah, absolutely. Good movie. Worth watching. I like it. Uh, also, I think it's streaming on um, YouTube. Okay. Uh, but it is also streaming on Tubi. 
Uh, Tubi is an app that I just discovered about a month or two ago, and it's like a free app where with ads, and it has lots of different movies on there. So yeah, enjoy Tubi. All right, um, my next pick is going to be Wuthering Heights. Good, it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> I like when they're children. Yeah? <laughs> That's about it. Okay, so my story with Wuthering Heights is uh, I didn't want to read the book, so... Because it's boring. It's boring. It's so boring. So I did my book report based on this movie. Just half the book. <laughs> and that did not work out well. I'm so, oh. If I was your teacher, I would not let you redo it. You would have just failed. Uh, although I did get to redo it, but I had to redo it in a weekend, so... Oh. I, <laughs> yeah. You didn't do the work the first time, so now yeah. here's your chance. Yeah, exactly. I had from Friday to Monday. <laughs> Otherwise, I did not get it done uh so i did it and then i read a really boring book yeah yeah and i asked her if i could change it because it was just like a book report and she was like no you have to do withering heights because that's what you started and i was like oh okay well here we go um that's so boring these people are awful yeah they're the worst withering house of terrible (laughs) i don't they all are just so vindictive against each other and i don't feel sympathy for any of them Oh, I'm so sorry. This was also nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, well, it's based off of a really famous book. That's a surefire way to get nominated. Yeah, you're not wrong. <sighs> um, works for two other things, three other things here, so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, three other things. Yeah. Uh, so, Wuthering Heights is the story of two awful people who fall in love and then can't be married. They should be together. Uh, um, and how the societal winds of the world keep them apart. Great. Congratulations. It's, I just, I didn't find it, I, okay, what I will say is, um, Merle Oberon. The lady. The lady. I liked her. I actually liked her performance. I liked the character, but I thought she did a good job of grounding that performance in a lot of ways. I don't know if it was just that Heathcliff is an awful character, um, but I did not super enjoy watching Laurence Olivier in this movie. And I've seen some of Laurence Olivier's Shakespeare stuff. And, like he, I enjoy watching him as an actor. Like good actor. Like not wrong. But I, this this was a hard watch. This was probably my second least favorite, or my I think it's near the bottom of my list. The Love Affair. Love Affair is probably the bottom. Yep. This is second to last. Love Affair was... I think you gave it three and a half stars still, though. Yeah, well, it was well made, I guess. I think I gave it three is what I went down to. I think that you just felt guilt. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. You just felt the societal pressures to give it a good rating. (laughs) You might not be right. Uh, Wrong, sorry. Um, You gave it one. I'm I'm proud of you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, then they're kids. (laughs) You gave it three stars. Okay, uh, and I think the reason why is because I would I would sit down and watch this again before I'd sit down and watch Love Affair again. Okay. And I think I gave Love Affair two and a half. It was fine. Okay. Okay, great. What's next? Uh, Dark Victory. Okay. Um, it's about a lady dying, then she <laughs> dies. <laughs> That's literally what this movie <laughs> is about. Uh-huh. Like, and like everyone's like, oh, enjoy your life, and then she does, and then she dies. But she can't for a really long time. She spends, she being Betty Davis's character, spends a lot of time pining after this doctor guy who doesn't love her. Yeah. 
But then he's like, I guess I'll love you because you're dying. Yeah. Sympathy marriage. What a, what a good guy. Yeah. The farewell. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was good. It took me a second. <sighs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I think this is a little higher up on the draft list because Betty Davis... Sure, I don't know what she does otherwise, other than she has eyes. This is a really good representation of the characters Betty Davis gets to play. Um, she, Betty Davis! <laughs> she gets to play characters that are a little bit rough around the edges for societal norms, mm-hmm. um, who are usually defined uh, in some trait that allows them to be a little more broad, a little more big, and a little more outspoken. She is a very outspoken person. Um, Dark Victory, I actually think that her performance in any other year, she probably wins. She probably wins the Best Actress Oscar. Yeah, she wins uh, over there. Um, This role is just so iconic and important. Um, But I, I really... For a movie that is about a socialite dying... And that is literally, and at sometimes she's the worst. It creates um, some sympathy for you her. You do find sympathy for her, and I do. Like I, I, I found myself sad or saddened by the end of this movie when she finally does die. Um, Betty Davis ranked by how much I want her character to murder me. <laughs> This is a good list. <laughs> who who made this letterbox list? Anna. Anna, good job, Anna. Yep. Um, my c- cultural context for Betty Davis is a s- stupid song that I love unabashedly. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Called Betty Davis Eyes. Who's that by? Kim Carnes. Great. Yeah, it was yeah. on trivia once, and I lost my freaking mind yeah. because I was like, my time to shine is here. <laughs> I know a music question, everyone. Yeah, you just wait for Betty Davis eyes and uh, Agadu. Oh, man. I don't know if I could tell you who sings that. <laughs> That's going to be the real issue. Um, yeah, because you guys, you guys know music pretty well. I just occasionally fill in some gaps. You, What you do for me during music is really helpful because you and I will know something like really similar and I can look over to you and be like, is it this? And you'll be, you'll be like, yes. Or you're like, no, it's this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yes. Or like, I'll recognize the tune and I'll be like, <laughs> and you'll be like, oh, of course, that's uh, something. Betty Davis eyes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what did you think of Dark Victory? She gets a Dark Victory. She dies? Is that her victory? I guess. Josh. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I thought, I, you know, you know, I think that it is a, as far as a film about someone is like, we're watching them die, because like, we do that all the time. We just watch films about people dying. Uh, it actually does a pretty good job, and it, it shows that we shouldn't just feel sympathy for her because she's dying, but, like, we get to see the layers of her personality, which is interesting because women don't have those in 1939 all the time. Yeah. Is that that a good take? And so, like, uh, it creates her to be a sympathetic character, not just because she's dying, but because, like, we actually get to learn about her as a person. Kind of. And I think that, though this does continue the 1939 trend of women dying, Mm -hmm. um, 
it focuses on that. It's it's its intent is to explore why and how and how she's reacting to that sentence, you mm-hmm. know. And so I, I I don't know. I like it a lot. All right. Um. Again, I think it's only cultural relevance is Betty Davis and her career, and that it's part of this Best Picture ten. But it, it's definitely I I think for me there's a line here of like I would I I would stand up for Dark Victory is like we should we should probably remember this movie. Okay. All right. What's your pick? No, oh, I picked this. <laughs> oh, did you? Me, you, oh, yeah, me, okay. you, me. Ah, yes, the other film I'd never heard of. <laughs> Ninochka. Ninochka. Ninochka is a film. Don't of... pronounce it. See it. That's what it says right <laughs> that, there. Yeah, that's one of the two taglines. Barbo laughs. That's the main one. Is it because, like, she used to be a silent, silent film actress? Uh, not necessarily. Garbo speaks. Uh, is it, uh, Garbo talks. Isn't that <laughs> one of the headlines somewhere or something? Probably. Isn't that a famous thing? So Greta Garbo was an actress who was very well known for being very solemn and stern-faced and did a lot of dramas, a lot of really, really heavy dramas. Um, And by 1939, her career had taken a little bit of a downturn. Um, she had ended up on a list of uh, actors who had been considered box office poison, and she was not getting a lot of work because of it, and she'd been being treated really poorly. And so Warner Brothers, who still had her under contract, said, let's try to revitalize her career, and let's have her do the one thing that she's never done, which is apparently laugh and smile, or be in a romantic comedy. Um, and so I was trying to think of, like, the equivalent of, like, who, who would be, like, one of those people who are like, oh, man, they're gonna do a comedy now. Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Daniel laughs. (laughs) Um, I think my similar take was, uh, when Ray Fiennes was in the Grand Budapest Hotel, because it was just such a joy to watch him just bum around as, like, this buffoonish hotel guy and like be in a comedy oh no he's pretty funny in harry potter (laughs) yeah but he's also a genocidal maniac you say potato i say (laughs) potato 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 um if someone did a comedy out of nowhere tom cruise he doesn't do comedies anymore yeah he only does I was trying to think of... Yeah. Oh, no, Anne Hathaway does comedies all the time, and they're terrible. <laughs> yeah. You got me on that one. <laughs> but, anyway, um, not only does it have to be a dramatic actor that does a comedy, one that works. So, like, this, I found myself really laughing and enjoying this movie. Um, I watched it twice, actually, um, just because of how much I enjoyed spending time with her and this character. She doesn't show up until 20 minutes, maybe 25 minutes into the movie. Maybe it's not that much. Maybe it's only like 10 or 15. Because aren't we following um, the three Russians for yeah. a while? So the plot of the movie is like there's these Russians who are trying to get back these jewels, or they're trying to, to sell these jewels that used to belong to like this Russian, uh, this Russian heiress. And and Ninochka is like the no nonsense um, 
negotiator who's going to come in and negotiate with this uh, French guy who then she ends up meeting and falling in love with and he tells her jokes and she laughs. And the scene where she finally breaks, which happens, I don't know, about halfway through the movie, is really fun and it was really like I was like yeah like this seemed earned like we tried to get here for such a long time and I think Garbo does a really good performance in she's stern faced through it all but yet also you can tell that like her facade is breaking and she's starting to really grow some affection for this guy and and it's just her performance is really good Ernst Lubitsch who is the director of this movie um does a lot he's got a lot of really whip smart dialogue he's got a lot of just a lot of um kind of romantic comedies like another big one for him is like The Shop Around the Corner which is a Jimmy Stewart film um, and trying to make some comparison to who he might be in modern, um, he might almost be like if the Coens were, um, really interested in romantic comedies. I thought you were going to say really interesting. Because <laughs> he's really focused on dialogue and the visual, his, his, like, his camera work at the time was, it's still pretty static, but it's all about movement within that. He does a lot of longer takes, and so he's kind of got a lot of style to it as well. So I like Ninochka quite a bit. I think it's my second favorite movie of this whole endeavor. Yeah. Second or third. What did you enjoy about it? Oh. Uh... Well, I think that out of most of these films, it is the funniest, and it was, like, the only one. I know that The Women is a comedy, but <laughs> he said with a shrug. Yeah. But this is the only one that actually, like, it's got bits and jokes that are actually, like, worthwhile and funny. I really like the three Russian characters who are trying to, like not stay in the fanciest room in Paris and yet try to stay at the fanciest room in Paris all at the same time. Mm-hmm. That was a good running bit. Yeah. Um and it was it was the it was easily the most lighthearted one. Yes. Um and uh, which was kind of nice after a while uh cuz like Mr. Chips for a while was a pretty seemingly lighthearted and then everyone started dying and the World War 1 happened and I was like, "Oh, we got sad. Yeah, it's no longer fun times. <laughs> um, in terms of its portrayal of communism prior to World War Two, I think that's a really interesting because it's. I don't think it has a negative perception of communism. I think it just presents it as. This is what Russia does. Yeah. And while at the same point, I don't think it's got a totally positive view on it because we do get later in the film and they are pining over like, oh, remember the good old days in Paris and now we're all here in one room. And and so I don't think it has the most like universally positive look on it. However, I don't think it belittles Russia at all. I just think this is their reality, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it was interesting to see Russia as not just, like, an uh, evil force. Yeah, absolutely. Which, like, we get into, like, a lot of times we can just easily make Russia the villain, but... Yeah. Context, everyone. Yeah. They were our allies at one point. Okay, anyways. Um, yeah. My pick. Yes. <sighs> Probably of Mice and Men. I think, yep, that's where I'd go to. Mm-hmm. All right. Talk to me about Of Mice and Men. For a book I don't love, I sure have seen so many adaptations of it. I've seen plays of it so many times. It's just like, they're going to do Of Mice and Men. I'm like, I guess I have to go. (laughs) 
She's like, I need to see how it turns out. The old, the good old American classic. Um, as far as Steinbeck goes, not Steinbeck's best work, but probably his most notable because it's his shortest. And what else does Steinbeck have? Grapes of Wrath. He's got like East of Eden. Okay. Um, he's got a few things. I mean, but yeah, those are three like big titles. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um. But. Uh... This of Mice and Men, which we kind of had a conversation about it, and I was like, this is probably the one that gives Curly's wife the most characterization out of most of the adaptations that I've seen. Sometimes plays do stuff, but yeah. it's few and far between. But as far as, like, a studio film or a studio representation, this is the one that does the most with A, it gives her a name, and B, it gives her time. Does it give her a name? Her name is May. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then it gives her time where we are not with George Milton and Lenny. We're hanging out at her house and we get to see, like, kind of the life she lives. And we are led further to understand her, um, why she hates her life. Yeah. Um. Of Mice and Men, because of how popular it is, it's always hard to talk about unless you talk about the differences between everything. Yeah, I can't say that I know. I, I definitely read the book in um, high the school. Novella. Uh, the novella. The <laughs> novella. Sorry, I definitely read that in high school. Um, mm -hmm. And I saw the Gary Sinise version, and then I saw this version for this. Um, Is this I, your I, first time seeing this? This version. Wow. Yeah. Um, I really liked it. I really enjoyed what was happening. I thought it was. It seems like it was really faithful to the story, <laughs> while allowing us to get to understand, like you said, the three main characters of George Lenny and Curly's wife um it also does a pretty good job of giving like slim some idea like some oh, characterization really like slim, yeah candy even crooks has stuff sorry, which is the old guy candy candy sorry I candy's really like only candy. got one arm with yes. one hand yeah, yeah, yeah. and then slim is the one who's like the captain of their okay i like the candy was who i really enjoyed mm -hmm. yeah, yeah yeah and so like it like it even gives like these minor characters who aren't who don't always get a ton of characterization like they give them a little bit of something to I do. I think my favorite scene throughout the whole thing was where Candy finds out what George and Lenny are trying to do like save up money and, and have a farm um, and that he then presents the option to them on how that they could actually do it pretty quickly. Uh, I really like that. Um, this it's set in the depression, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not really all that. It's it's literally it's almost a contemporary film in that sense. I'm pretty sure um, that the book was written in 1937. Yeah, so this has to be a really quick turnaround. Um, in terms of, you know, how it's being adapted and things like that. Um, 1937. Okay, so it's within two years of its mm -hmm. um, written, this adaptation comes out. And it makes sense. They did this a lot. A lot of early cinema is based in adaptations of popular books and popular plays. There was, much like now, it, it was a very IP-driven time, you know? And, and so this makes a lot of sense. Uh, I liked getting to see a Burgess Meredith performance that wasn't just the coach from Rocky, um, because, like... T. George Milton? Yeah, Burgess Meredith is the coach from Rocky. I've never seen him young. Yeah, like, it was really nice to be like, oh man, this is... Because when Rocky comes out, he's, like, a person that helps give clout 
to that movie and get it made. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the reasons why. Uh, yeah, I, I just think it's a really solid adaptation. I think it helps... I mean, this definitely probably helps further of Mice and Men as a great American literary work because it not only then puts it out there to... It just gets it out to more people and they go read the book and stuff like that. Yeah, except for it, like, spoils the movie at the begin Or the whole plot at the beginning because, like, it shows... So it's from a poem that translates something to, like, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Right. And so, like, they show that quote at the beginning of the movie, and I was like, well... Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna come from, like, a, from, I guess, the dummy point of view. <laughs> I didn't read it. I read it, um, but I was like, it may have been one of the first times that I was like, oh, that's why it's called Of Mice and Men. Yeah, it's from a pretty... I think the poem was called, like, The Mouse... Uh huh, or something, and no. so like th- yeah, that's why that's why it's called that. It's not because many Lenny has a mouse in his pocket. It's not no, yeah. which is what many people at my high school <laughs> thought was the reason why it was called that. And here he likes bunnies. He likes bunnies in all of them. Yeah. Um, but in here he has a bird in his pocket, and usually uh-huh. it's a mouse. Yeah, oh, I felt so bad for that puppy. And just he just wanted to love it, and I was like, that puppy's gonna not have a good fate. Huh. <sighs> Gotta stop spinning Charlie around. <laughs> uh, yeah, good adaptation. Why is it so high? Why is it five? This is five on our list. I don't know. Like, I feel like... So, it helps popularize with Mice and Men. Yeah. Even further. Uh-huh. Uh, which is already a popular book, but, like, I think that it even helps keep it in the conversation. And, yeah. like, even so much as something like uh, the Gary Sidney's version, yeah. like... Just keeping it in the conversation. Like, I have students who are currently reading Fahrenheit 451, and they honestly just don't see the point of it. And, like, then they were showed a movie trailer, and they're like, oh, this looks interesting! And I'm like, well, that that movie's not good, but... (sighs) Which version was it? Not the Michael Shannon and Michael B. Jordan version. Okay, which I haven't seen. I don't know which version it was, but it was an older version. Um, it, yeah, I, I, I just think that film is a good way to be able to share these classic stories, um, and hopefully encourage people to read them. Yeah. Um, I actually think that Of Mice and Men is one of the, one of the better adaptations of most things, because it's a short book, and it's easier to adapt that way. You don't have to cut as much, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and the journeys of the characters are really simple and really clean. Um, I do wish that... I, what I liked about this is, like you said, that Curly gets Curly's wife gets more to do. Um, and, I, and I appreciate that in terms of this adaptation. I didn't catch that she had a name, which I really appreciated about this adaptation. Um, I also like that... And this may be true in others, but, like, it's really clear that Curly is abusive and awful. And, like, you understand why she's wanting to do what she wants to do. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Um, okay, I have a hard choice. <laughs> okay, so I know we're to the top four. Um, I think that there is one that is far more. This is. Oh yeah, this is my. This is your pick. Yeah. Um, I think that there's one that we find relevant today because of the subject material and how it's interesting. 
Um, and I think that there's one that has more greatly influenced film. Yes. And so, Josh, which one are we going to talk about? The relevance to society today or the relevance to film history? I think that if I'm looking at these in terms of maybe just name value alone, Mm -hmm. I don't think either of them have all that broad of name value anymore. One of them but has I more. Do you think one has more than the other? And I'm going to think that I'm going to pick Stagecoach at mm-hmm. 4. The reason why this has this one the, the next one that's yes. going to be said has more name value is because it's a longer name and the longer a name is, the more well, memorable it is. And I think that while this is a single word, yes. and it gets lost in the conversation. And I think that while Stagecoach, which is the movie that I picked at number four, is an iconic John Wayne movie, it is not the iconic John Wayne movie. And Searchers? I wouldn't... Maybe The Searchers, maybe The Quiet Man, maybe just like... Maybe there's not an iconic John Wayne movie as much as John Wayne. Yeah. And this, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, is not Jimmy Stewart's iconic movie either, but it's probably two. What's his iconic movie? Is it Vertigo? It's A Wonderful Life. Oh. I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe not. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe it's... Rope! (laughs) (laughs) So... That's the reason why I know who Jimmy Stewart is, is because I've seen all these friggin' Hitchcocks, (laughs) and he just loves him. (laughs) I would dare say that... But Josh, we now have Mutt Williams. Mutt Williams. I would dare say that history is going to be kinder to, and I think Jimmy Stewart is going to have a longer legacy in pop culture than John Wayne. Not that John Wayne won't be an American icon forever and always, because he will be, but he's not a great dude, and we all think he is, so. Canceled. Um. Um, Yes. (laughs) John Wayne, so as this movie started, as I knew, like, oh, this is the first film with John Wayne. When the movie started, I was like, which one's John Wayne? (laughs) There are a lot of people, and I could not figure it out. He's the guy with the cowboy hat. Yeah, his name is The Kid something. It's the Waco Kid? Waco Kid, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I kept calling him Billy the Kid in my mind. (laughs) Because that's essentially who he is, more or less. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This film... Happen. I knew that this was coming. Yeah, stagecoach. Yeah, no, this. <laughs> oh, the, the actual, like, big stagecoach chase scene. Yeah, I, uh, the whole film, I was like, someone's gonna jump onto a horse. Yep. And I need that to happen. And that stunt person's name is Yakima Chestnut. Good job. Yeah. 10 out of 10. He's, like, one of the most iconic stunt people in all of history. I'm really proud of him. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so <laughs> I was—I felt like I was waiting so long for that to happen. Um, the film itself is actually... The film itself is not the worst. It's pretty interesting. Uh, some of the characters there, like, because they're butting heads and they have different personalities and they have to learn to work together. Uh, it's all good and dandy. And, like, the women here, one of them's pretty cool and one of them sucks because she's just mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a really interesting scene where they're all they're like halfway through their stagecoach journey from point A to point B 
and they stop somewhere and they all have to have dinner and the seating arrangements were going to end up making Fancy Pants Lady and not Fancy Pants Lady sit next to each other. And Fancy Pants Lady had a big issue about it. Um, and so then she ends up moving to the other side of the table. I really like the way that Ford um, shoots and, and, and shows us this scene because there's not a lot of dialogue actually in the scene. And yet through this, you get a lot of their character and their personality. You get how they're feeling towards each other. And Ford also is allowing you to be like, hey, listen, lady, why are you judging this lady? You're both in the same situation at this moment. You like both you're suck. you're not better than each other in this moment and you shouldn't be judging each other for it. And I think it's a really good way of visual staging to help show their characters and their character arcs. I think a lot of older films get criticized for in our modern sensibility they are what we would call slow. Um but Films like Stagecoach, I think, have a lot of life to them because their camera work proves and shows that of that era, visual language is much more important in a film like Stagecoach to where what it's trying to tell you with its camera and its positioning and what it chooses to show you is as important as the dialogue and the things in the frame as well. And I think that's what I like about classic cinema is that it, as an art form, has a lot more respect for the art form as a whole. Um, whereas in a film like a Hobbs and Shaw, there's not a lot of artful artful shots or composition. It's just kind of let's go point A to point B and rely on The Rock and Jason Statham to be funny funny. I mean, Hobbs and Shaw also doesn't have any quiet moments. And this, this has quiet yeah, moments. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And Which so, is what you need. And I, the reason I make a comparison to a Hobbs and Shaw is because Stagecoach is the action is an action film of the day. There's this giant sequence that it builds towards, which is this chase um, sequence, and we all know what we're we're in for here. Stagecoach comes along at a time where the western was a dead genre. John Wayne was not a not like a, a name by any means. Uh, John Ford had done some silent film, but had really kind of fallen by the wayside. And they all come together and they make this piece of film stagecoach which then revitalizes a genre and revitalizes a career and makes a star out of john wayne to the point where the we don't have the western genre dominating the cinema in the way that superhero films dominate our cinema without stagecoach as cinema goes cinema history will say that you know, it, to use that old SAT kind of, like, comparison, Stagecoach is to 1939 as Iron Man is to 2008. Like, we don't have a genre the way we know it. Film doesn't change in the way that it does without Stagecoach and its characters and its its action sequences and its stunts and its uh, story and the, the revitalization of the genre. Um, it's an important film. I would almost dare say that it is a more important film than it is a good film. Though I did really love watching this movie. Um, you gave this five stars. I did, yeah. I really, really loved this movie. Um, John Wayne sure is cool. John Wayne is really cool He's just movie. doing so many cool things. Yeah, like cool guy <laughs> doing cool things. <laughs> I think it was my review. Cool yeah. guy. I didn't even talk about the you, chase. You wrote Mutt Williams in your review, okay? Yeah, he's just like Mutt Williams. He's just a cool guy doing cool things. Um, not to, not, I, I, I'm blowing it out of proportion. He's not as bad as Mutt Williams, yeah. but more or less, it's just like, like I, un, I see 
I see where we get all of the Williams of the world from a film yeah. like this. Um, I think it has time for its characters. It, it has time for its story. It, it's, it's just a really interesting piece to watch. Now, in conversation with a film like The Searchers, um, and in conversation with um, our relationship towards Native Americans... Um, not the best. Not the best. No, not at all. Um, we get we open up with a very stereotypical version of a Native American character, and then after that scene, I think the only time they're seen is as villains attacking the stagecoach. You know, and then I even think there's a line somewhere in there where somebody says, "Why can't they just be happy with what they've been given?" And I was like, "You took it from them. You took their land." Like. It, so it does. It is problematic in that sense. I will. I will not say that. But that is the thing that's true about the Western genre in general, you know. Um, and that I think, as we kind of move forward, even as we talk about Gone with the Wind, um, embedded in 1939 is the beliefs of the nation, or most of the nation. I won't say all of the nation because you know there's there's no such thing as absolutes, but. We were a racist country. We were racist towards not only African Americans, but to Native Americans and to Asian Americans and to anybody who wasn't white, you know. And it's a very entitled yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so to look at these movies, I want to say that like there is good film. There's great film here, but that doesn't come without consequences. That doesn't come without results and or of awful, awful things and stereotypes. And Stagecoach pushes those forward. It's a big deal that it premieres. Um, but yeah. And I think in any other year, it would have been in contention, a much higher contention for winning Best Picture. Of the films here in my hand, uh-huh. I think there's. These two are the only ones that have people of color. Is that a. We check my math? Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Okay. I, I don't know what that there says. There might anything. be a. Servant in, oh, there is in this. In the women, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, yeah. So we've gone through nine films, eight films, and there's only three representations of people of color. You know? And uh, we're gonna get... And the one so far that's the best is probably this. Which, of Mice and Men. Yeah. Yeah. Because he gets a scene. Yeah. And... Yeah. Uh, um, well, and we're going to talk through two more films that don't have people of color and one with really problematic representation of them. So, All right. So number three is The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it's my pick. <laughs> I'm really excited for you to see how you defend Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, no. Mr. Smith as... Goes to Washington. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> Uh, Jimmy Stewart, and because we never learned from our past. Okay, so number two, Josh. <laughs> Film is fun. Uh, I don't know if I ever wrote a review on this. This one's also pretty high up there. I I quite genuinely liked it. There's kind of a courtroom scene. Um, kind not, of. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Which kind of, like, also, like, gets my goat. Yeah. I quite like courtroom scenes. Um, it's It's great. What if we put people who cared about the country and the senate it's, yeah it, it's I, a fantasy film it's a it is a fantasy film <laughs> um it's just you know like one of the reasons why we're gonna remember jimmy stewart over john wayne more favorably is because jimmy stewart chooses to be in films where he has characters who want to present good nature 
wholesome yeah. attitudes, and I think that that's a positive thing. Uh, wonderful. Uh, it's Frank Capra, right? Yep. Frank Capra, who continues his thing of, I'm going to be a social justice warrior, and we all applaud him for it. Yeah. Um, he's 39, the social justice warrior. He also then teams up. I mean, Capra, Capra is the... Capra is Spielberg of his time. He's too sentimental. He just wants to, like, put, like, the good stories forward. He wants to, like, have a representation of everybody in his world and, like, be happy about life. Talks about family a lot. Talks about, like, life and modern times. Mm, and could so, be worse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is, um, a... Is it the... Is, this might be the first Capra Stewart co- collaboration. Not a hundred percent sure if it is or not, but they're they also have it's a wonderful life together. Um, so yeah, I, don't, I find this film hard to talk about only because I definitely confuse this with the guy that did Gentleman's Agreement, Kafka, Kakor, uh, Kakor. Yeah, sorry, I confused him for a second. Doesn't I, matter. Still, Justice Warrior. I think that Capra and Kakor have similar themes <laughs> at times. So yes, thank you. Um, Kakor was kicked off this movie. Because he wanted to fix stuff. Mm-hmm. He wanted to. You know, he wanted to break a gentleman's agreement. Yep. And that's not okay. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, Mr. Smith is hard to talk about only because, like, I feel like you kind of know what it is. Like, it's an epic Stuart performance of him going to going to task and yelling about how things are changing and we need to make sure that we keep the little guy in mind. Mm-hmm. Um. I do find it interesting that people on both sides of the political debate, like, hail Mr. Smith as, like, a reason why they go to Washington and a reason why they get involved with politics. And he represents, in a weird way, a un... A, a partisan or a bipartisan representation of a political divide. Like everybody can see something in this Mr. Smith character that they want to see about themselves as well. Um, Stewart's great. I love the courtroom speech. Um, I still, yeah, Mr. Smith. It's great. All right. Um, is it my pick? Yeah. Gone with the wind. Yeah, if you didn't pick that, I would have been really shocked. <laughs> I didn't pick this ever because I, I did, wasn't sure where I was supposed to put this, Josh. <laughs> I'm going to just be really honest. I don't know how to talk about Gone with the Wind, but okay. here's what I'm going to say. Okay. Scarlett Jo... No, Scarlett Scarlett, o- <laughs> Scarlett O'Hara is annoying. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we're, we're taking a look at a post-Civil War... Uh, look at people who were plantation owners who don't feel any remorse for the things that they've done in terms of slavery in terms of the civil war which is hard to do especially at in 2019 i can't imagine what it was like in 1939 and i know that the civil rights movement still hasn't happened yet but just it's it's so interesting to me that this doesn't have and I guess I don't know about the time, but this is one of the high, this is the highest grossing movie adjusted for inflation, and seemingly because of those numbers, it didn't acquire that backlash. It wins the pick, best picture. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, it wants us to feel sympathy that the plantation owners lost their land, and I don't find it 
very successful in it. Um, some moments of Scarlett O'Hara's character are interesting, like the one where she has the lady that just had a baby and she's like transporting her across the United States and like she's leading the horse. There's one particular scene where they're under a bridge and there's soldiers walking above them and she's standing in the water and she could have easily, she has a servant with her who she could have made done that, but she did it. So that was, that was an interesting moment, but otherwise I struggled watching through this film and I, I know that there are significance in film and there's significance and we set something on fire <laughs> and that's, that's about, <laughs> I don't know how to talk about those things though. So it's very hard in my 2019 brain to feel sympathy for these characters. Um, I agree with you. Thank you. I, I have a lot of respect for this movie, but I also have a lot of like, you suck movie. Um, I would, here's what I would recommend anybody and everybody do. Uh, there is a podcast called Unspooled with um, Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson, and they watched through the AFI's top 100 list. And earlier this year, I want to say around July-ish, but you, you can Google it pretty easy, um, they have an episode of Gone with the Wind. Um, and they talk about, in a lot of depth, um, the issues with the film, and they talk about the uh, representation in the film, and they, they have a really nice discussion about it. And the reason why I would say go listen to that episode as well, Amy Nicholson, who is a critic who I really enjoy, um, probably done a lot more film classes than us, has a really eloquent way of speaking about how and why Scarlet is a really important character. And while Scarlet is actually um, a sympathetic character in spite of some of the uh, problematic racial elements in the film. And so I don't want to use her words because I don't actually agree with all of them. Um, because I also find Scarlet hard to watch. I think the technical achievement of this film is, is massive and huge. The scale, the burning of Atlanta, the uh, use of color, the um, just the cinematography in general, the set design, the production design. Like This is a ginormous film. I think outside of a few select performances, I really enjoy all the people in this movie. Um, the stereotype typical performances of the some of the slaves or they're not slaves because we're after the civil war but Mammy. the the yes um of for Hattie mcdaniel specifically for butterfly mcqueen um, is she the girl who talks with a really high voice yes that's the one that's very hard for me to watch um it's because it's very 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 um it's just racist. It's just flat out. It's 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 as racist as um, Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's doing playing and and a person from Asia. Um, Mammy's portrayal by Hattie McDaniel, I think, it has a little bit more interesting context to it in the sense of this is the nineteen thirty nine version of trying to take it back um, because. Mammy is the voice of reason in a lot of scenes. Oh, yeah, she is. Because, um, like, she's just like, Scarlett, you're stupid. <laughs> yes. And we're like, yeah. 
Um, and she is playing a stereotype, mm-hmm. um, but I think part of the reason why that she wins the Best Supporting Actress Oscar and is the first African-American person to win an Oscar, period. Um, but she can't attend the ceremony. She can't attend the ceremony. Well, she, she attends the ceremony. She can't attend the premiere because oh, it's in Atlanta. Oh, that's what it is. Um, yeah, no, she's at the Oscar ceremony. Um she does have to use a different entrance because she can't come through the front door um but she's there um it like i i can't even like and then hollywood as they introduce her like pats itself on the back for the progressive steps it's taking forward i mean um it's as let me neg this film <laughs> yeah, go for sure it. is impressive that they even let people that it wasn't just blackface. Yeah, no, that's that's a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not that long uh, removed from widespread blackface. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I think the film itself. I when I watched through Scarlett's journey through the film, I think is is it does work at times. I never feel sympathy for her because. I can't turn off this my brain and and just be like, let's let's watch about this slave plantation owner and all of the people that she's doing. Like I can't turn my brain off of that. But if I look at it in the context of a character, specifically a woman in Civil War era, trying to live and survive in a world where she's being forced to marry and or forced to. Um, move and or she's like she goes through a lot of hardships and how she takes it and how she survives through it and all of her goal of what she really just wants is Rhett Butler um who doesn't want her back um like it it is I get where and why Scarlett O'Hara becomes an iconic character because of the trials that she has to go through I don't love that the film um I don't love that the film portrays uh, African Americans in the way that it does, um, and and in that you know that there are just folks that are that are happy to be there. Uh, it, it's a really complicated film to talk about, um, but I do think it does. It creates some Uncle Tom's Cabin yes. characters. Yeah, yeah, but I do think it does hold a significant spot in cinema history. And if you're going to talk about the history of American cinema you're going to need to talk about Gone with the Wind. It is a movie that represents us as a culture at a specific time in all of its good and bad qualities. And to cancel a movie like Gone with the Wind and just say, nope, we're not going to watch it anymore, it's too racist, I think would be doing a disservice to trying to tell our story and in trying to teach how we as a society got to where we were and how we can look at things and be like, man, that's wrong. This is what we should be doing, you know? And so it can be a useful tool in terms of telling America's story. And that's, I think, where and how Gone with the Wind should, can live in our society. I am not for canceling it all together i think it does have value it's four hours long it is four hours long long means good no that was my take during the jojo rabbit (laughs) film the longer something is the better it is (sighs) all right uh 
What's your pick for number one? This is what happened last time also, is that you made it seem like the person who picks first also picks last, and that was not at all the situation. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry. Okay, hang on. What's your pick for number one? <laughs> the Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah, there we go. We did it. Two Victor Fleming films in a row. Really? Yeah. He directed both of these? Yep. There was like four directors on Gone with the Wind, but he's the credited director. David O. Southlink is really the creative person behind that, but... Yes, he directed both Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows this film. If you don't know this film, you're like me, and you're afraid of everything. <laughs> uh, I think one of the reasons why I never watched this is because I, my, my family, my brother's, one of my brother's favorite films growing up was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and I didn't like that film, and when I looked at this, it reminded me of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, so we owned it on VHS, but I did not want to watch it ever, uh-huh. because I didn't like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, so that's why I didn't watch this until I was 24 years old. There you go. Um, But it doesn't matter that I hadn't watched it. I knew everything that was happening. I knew uh-huh. everything. I knew everything. Everything. There was nothing about this that was surprising. One thing about this is surprising. Okay. There's a shot of the scarecrow holding a gun, and I just <laughs> didn't expect that. Well, it is 1939. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I was like, yeah, shoot that witch. Yeah. Um, you know, Dorothy, don't give up. Make friends with people. Yell at lions. It's all great. It's all great lessons. Like, if someone's bullying you, stand up to the bully, and then they'll probably stand down and they'll become your friend. It's great. It's exactly what happened. Help people when they need it. Give them encouragement. Give them hope. Dorothy's great inspiration. Uh, The Wicked Witch of the West is awesome. Baller. 10 out of 10. (laughs) Uh, Flying monkeys are creepy. I have a theory that I want (laughs) to test. Oh, okay. Um, about The Wizard of Oz and why it is, I think, the most representative of 1939 and why it is the film that 80 years on we still know and it, and is ingrained in all of us. Okay. What are the problematic elements of this movie? Isn't there, like, a dead person in the no, background? It's a, <laughs> a boom mic. Um, probably nothing. Yeah. Theory worked. All right. There's nothing wrong with this movie. It's a legit, well-made movie. It is. It ushers in, in the most direct way possible, the transition from black and white to color films. No, it's, <laughs> no, it's not the first uh, color film, but like it literally is probably one of the first color films that most people saw because it was huge. I mean, outside of Gone with the Wind. Um, this is also made for people of... Like pretty much all ages. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a musical. Judy Garland is a huge star. It's based on a ginormously popular children's book. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes some changes to the source material, but it's just the music is catchy. It's fun. The dance numbers are really engaging. The characters are upbeat. They, they, I love all the things you said about who uh, Dorothy is. It's a character in this movie. Judy Garland is a major star at this point, even though she's in. She's just starting the sad part of her career. Like, it. I mean, her whole career is sad. Never mind. She's just. It's just sad. Um. Anyway, Wizard of Oz. I think is just. It is. It's as American as anything else. It's as. It's as iconic as anything else. Um. You can still reference it, and kids know it. Yeah. 
people know it. Uh, this movie played on television on endless loop of during the holiday season. It's where I watched it for the first time. I watched it several times over. Um, when my mom was growing up, it played once a year, and her that her mom made like a pot roast, and they'd all sit around and watch it. My mom talks about that all the time. Yep, yeah, it aired on Christmas for a while, and then it aired on Thanksgiving for a while, and then it aired on Easter for a bit. Yeah, it was connected to being Christmassy because I remember in uh, Christmas Story. They are at the parade, and there's mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz characters, and then like that meant that now we watch Wizard of Oz on Christmas. Yeah. Um, I've seen this movie uh, on the big screen three times. Um, I've seen this movie twice in my <laughs> life. I, yeah, I've watched it. Like I like the Wizard of Oz. It's it's. A, I mean, I don't think we need to defend why it's the most iconic movie of 1939. No. I think that it's it, one of the most iconic movies of all time. Um, what do you? What I would love to know, like, what was your experience, like, of, or what do you think of the movie having watched it for the first time at 24? <laughs> I get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. I mean, like, I wasn't. I one of the unfortunate things is that being born and being alive nowadays, like, when you look at things, there wasn't a lot of things in here that I had never seen before in some other. Sp- in some other way. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have that first like, oh, wow, I've never never experienced this. Yeah. Um, and so, taking that out, nothing about the film surprised no. me. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, it, it kind of just felt like I was listening to someone play, like, the greatest hits. Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, um... <sighs> Like, there wasn't even, like, a reference level of, like, oh, that's where, that's where it's from. Like, it was all... <laughs> it felt like I had seen the film before without ever having seen the film. I think that's amazing. <laughs> the fact that it's so ingrained and that every ounce of it is. I'm always genuinely surprised in some ways. Not genuinely surprised because, well, like... Well, I, let me take something back. Oh, I've okay. also seen Wicked. Oh, yes. And yeah. that that's also a helpful... Fair. Thing. But, like, even, like, having seen Wicked without ever seeing The Wizard of Oz, like, I ah, I got it. I know. Yeah. I, I entered the theater understanding what is going to happen. It is interesting that this film is not in the, in the conversation of greatest films ever made. It's not? It is on, like, the fringe of things. Like, it's on the AFI Top 100, and, like, it is an important film, but, like... It's not with like Citizen Kane and uh, Vertigo and like this up there. And the is only, it because it's a kids? I was gonna say that I think that's why, it, because I frankly think the the filmmaking and the advancements in technology are as good as Citizen Kane, Vertigo, whatever you want to put up there. But then this film was also genuinely beloved, and I think that in some ways, being a technical achievement is not enough. Um, you have to be beloved, I think, to be in that conversation. And, like, honest to goodness, I guess if, like, there's one movie in all of time that, like, I think will stand the test of time, the rest of the medium dies. They'll keep it alive just for The Wizard of Oz. I think that's just true. We can't, we don't, as a society, want to lose that. It's ingrained in us. 80 years later. <laughs> All right, Kylie. We did it. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thanks for doing 39 with me. Well, you're welcome. Um, Which th- year's better? 39 or 99? 99. Yeah? <laughs> 39. Um, 
I will say that there's probably there's more important films than thirty nine. Yes. As far as my enjoyment went, nineteen ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine is also just easier for me to see how they affect t- today. Yeah. Like that's a lot. That's a lot simpler because it was only twenty years ago. This is eighty years ago. So, what did you like more? You watched forty movies for one, and you watched thirteen for another. I weirdly feel more nostalgic. I mean, not maybe not weirdly. I feel more nostalgic for ninety nine, mm-hmm. but thirty nine. Like I, I love. I love. I really like these old classic movies. Um, I don't. I would definitely maybe say that if we're having the conversation of which is the best film year of all time, uh, I may have to pick ninety nine only for has more. We it has more. I'm sure there are more 39 films mm-hmm. we could have gotten a hold of. It's just not as easy to get a hold of 39 films anymore, which partly leads to my, it might be 99 only because we have more cultural context and conversation to it. I would imagine that 20 years ago in 99, even they were like, well, 39, because there was more cultural context to that. And the more further we get a, away from something, the harder that it is to really see its cultural context. Um, if you had to set me down and ask me which ones I would watch again, I would definitely probably, I would, I mean, I like 99. I like our 11 for 99. I'd watch all of those again, too. All 11? I think you'd watch nine of them. Well, I mean, fair. I don't think you'd rewatch Blair Witch. I wouldn't. Nah, I don't know. Uh, maybe um, Office Space you don't like. You might not watch that one. I I would pick thirty nine <laughs> only because they're they're the, the films I dislike here. I see their value in ninety nine. It gets really hard for me to see the value of the Blair Witch Project because I don't like what it does. It's okay, Josh. We'll watch it together. Yeah, and then I won't have to watch it alone for the first time. There we go. I'll do it for you. Both years, I you think, are You keep saying, like, good. you'll rewatch these films that you hate because you didn't watch them with me, and now I have to watch them alone. And I don't ask you to. I would. I would, though, Kylie. I really, really would. All right, Josh. Let's see who's been paying attention. Oh, no. Hey, listeners at home, you can also play. This is a fun one. Everyone could play. This is an easy one. Okay. Name... Give titles of movies that are currently playing. Frozen 2. Um, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Midway. Um, oh my gosh. Uh, the Shining sequel, Doctor Sleep. Charlie's oh Angels. Oh my god, my brain just died. Playing with I'm, Fire. I Ford vs. Like, Ferrari. I was like, Knives <laughs> Out? No, that's not out yet. I was like, Last Flight of San Francisco? No, it already came out. Oh gosh. Alright, well. I failed at that one. I'm so sorry. Harriet. Harriet. Uh, uh, um, yeah, so many things. Who's paying attention? <laughs> uh, you know what I haven't been paying attention to? Box office numbers. Which usually I used to go on there every day and look at what's happening. And now I don't care because I don't like the way it looks anymore. Oh, stupid box office mojo. I still go on there once a week, but I mean, it's just to figure it out. Um, I got the box office question right uh, on trivia on Thursday. Ooh. What was it? Let me see. If uh, I can what were the top four movies of last week? Of last um, week of last week of last weekend. Yeah, Ford um, versus Ferrari. Yep, Charlie's Angels. Uh huh. Midway. Uh huh. I need one more of a top movie playing. You can't see it, Kylie. I can't see it. Yeah, the invisible man. <laughs> 
I can't, it, it's not playing here. No, it is. That was a terrible clue that I will tell and I will give you more context to in a moment. Did I make it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Can I get a better clue? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> you said it was going to be the best movie of all time at one point. Oh gosh, <laughs> uncut gems. <laughs> It's going to be the best. Did I say that ironically? Yes. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised you haven't seen it. <laughs> you want your next clue? Yeah. It was released by Nickelodeon Studios. Playing with fire. Yep. <laughs> you can't see me, John Cena. I understand now. <laughs> I can. I just won't see him. <laughs> Alright friends, if you want to join this conversation and why wouldn't you, you can do so at friendofriendpodcast.squarespace.com You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and iTunes if it's a 5 star review or any star review as well as hit that subscribe button Charlie, go eat That helps us get more listeners uh, You can also find us on Facebook at Friend of Friend Podcast and Twitter at DWT underscore podcast YouTube Tumblr Letterboxd Thank you so much for listening I've been Josh I'm Kylie. Quack, 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 quack.